With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello there. My name is Miles Jupp, cricket fan, and together with my co-host, Mark Wood, actual cricket man, we invite you to listen to Middle Please Umpire, a new cricket podcast containing the two of us banging on and sounding off together about cricket and quite possibly all manner of other things while lifting the lid on Mark's life as an international cricketer. And as if that wasn't enough, we shall be welcoming some great guests along the way and chatting to them about life on and off the playing field as they spill the beans, drop some truth bombs and see if they can withstand the scrutiny of our brutal interrogations. Middle Please Umpire is available right now from all your favourite podcast providers. Welcome to the Man City Show. It's Nigel Rothband back in the chair. And today we're recording a very special podcast. Every generation of City fans will talk about their favourite player or the best player ever to wear the sky blue of Manchester City. Many of the current generation will argue, of course, that's David Silva or Sergio Aguero or Kevin De Bruyne. My dad's generation might argue at Peter Doherty, and he still does. <laughs> but, for my, but for my generation, there can only be one, and there is only one, because he had everything. Poise style, stamina. He could run all day. Vision, skill. He could head a ball. And he scored goals. But despite that, he was reserved and humble. On today's show, we pay tribute to the late, to the great Colin Bell MBE. And to help me do that is not the usual three, but four guests, all of whom had the privilege and the pleasure to see him play. My three regulars, Rob Behrens, Paul Denby and Roger Reed, and we also welcome fellow podcaster, blogger, journalist, and most important of all, the man who, together with Colin, wrote his autobiography, Reluctant Hero. It is, of course, Ian Cheeseman. Gentlemen, welcome one and all. Welcome to the show. Can I, can I first of all just ask each of you to briefly 
outline your thoughts and reflections on the King of the Kipax, Colin Bell. We'll, we'll get into the detail and the stories and the personal bits and pieces, but maybe just a bit like I've done, maybe you could just add your own personal touch of what Colin Bell meant to you. And maybe, Rob, I could maybe ask you to go first, my friend. Thank you. It's a privilege. I mean, Colin Bell reflects the secret history of my feelings. Uh, he recalls the days of my youth, uh, the days of an inferiority complex uh, stemming from United's domination. And he washed it away with his genius and his brilliance. I mean, if you think back to what we had, £45,000 from uh, Berry, and City couldn't afford the repayment schedules for that. And uh, he transformed the lives of so many people like me who travel around the country on trains and buses going to watch him and stand on the Kipax and sing about him. And I went to see him and I got beaten up in places like Liverpool and Derby because I was wearing a scarf. And I just loved him and what he represented, which was an integrity and a quality of football that, frankly, as a City supporter, I had not seen before. And when you talk about him, you talk about Nijinsky, as he was called by Malcolm Allison, or Ding Dong by Joe Mercer. And it's just wonderful memories that uh, go with my youth and my friends and uh, growing up in Manchester. Paul Denby, your thoughts, my friend? Well, they're very similar. I'd just like to read you something, if I can. Um, it was in the final programme, the Manchester City-Southampton programme, from the last match at Main Road in 2003. Um, after over two years out of the game, Colin Bell returned. I saw grown men weeping at a football match in front of their mates. His influence was incredible. Not because he had a great game, but because of the lift he gave the team. Four second-half goals later, and without reply... King Colin left to another standing ovation. I think that just summed up what he was all about. It was his impact on the rest of the team. He wanted to establish himself as a world-class player, which he was. Um, his influence and the way he held himself so... He, he was just such a great guy. I never got to meet him. It's a, a shame. I really would have liked to have met him. But he is known now throughout football. The tributes have been pouring in over the last week since this terrible news came out. I've read so many uh, newspaper articles from The Times, The Guardian, watched Football Focus uh, twice to see uh, the tribute paid pay to him. Fantastic. And he deserves every word that came out. And the fans of other clubs as well, who then went to their grandparents or their fathers, if they're too young to have known him, and everybody, nobody had a bad word. Now, I know people don't speak ill of the dead, but the words that came out from other people were just so full of praise for what a brilliant footballer he was, and a gentleman as well. So uh, I think I'll leave it at that. It's, um, it's wonderful. Thank you, Paul. Roger, someone who definitely met him. You obviously were working at Main Road, as well as being a big fan, and obviously had the great privilege and pleasure of meeting Colin on, on more than one occasion, on a, on a daily basis, I guess, a lot of the time, while you were working there, Roger. Indeed, yes. I mean, can I say, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled to be on this special tribute programme. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm delighted that you've invited Ian Cheeseman on the show as well. Hi, Ian. It's, uh, it's lovely that you've come on as well. Um, Colin was my first big hero. Um, and he's always been my big hero right the way through my life. So 
I'm sure you can all relate to the fact that when I first heard the news last week, I really was shedding a tear or two. It was so upsetting. Uh, I think the worst news you can possibly hear is that your big hero, your only hero, has sadly passed away. He, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was so shy, so modest, so unassuming. And yet, when he actually graced us with his presence on a football pitch, he had such a massive influence on games. Um, and the stats bear, bear, bear out the sort of significant influence he made as a, as a player. He made 501 appearances for City, scoring 153 goals, which is an incredible return. It's about one every three games. You know, he, 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 and the thing with, with Colin was that he played in an era when the pitches weren't, were nothing like the, as good as they are now. He, he used to collide across these muddy bogs of pitches that they used to play on. He had style, he had finesse. He, he was just a wonderful, wonderful footballer to watch. And uh, uh, I'm so sorry that we'll uh, no longer be able to speak again. Ian, I mean, you've obviously had a lot of time to reflect on this dreadful news, someone you got to know well, someone, as I said at the start of the show, you actually sat down and had the pleasure and privilege of writing his book. I mean, how, how possibly can you summarise your thoughts and feelings at the moment? It's impossible. Uh, the truth is, it's impossible. I mean, obviously, I identify with everything that's been said because I watched him as a player at his peak. I watched him after he came back after that terrible injury. And, and I got to meet him at supporters' club events and things like that. But then when the opportunity came to sit down with him over the period of a couple of years and talk to him on a very personal, intimate way, uh, this was the very private man who very rarely let anybody into his very small inner circle, a very introverted man. Um, I got to know him as a person. So I... I mourn for him as, as a hero of Manchester City. I mourn for him as my personal footballing hero, but I don't mean this lightly. I mourn for him genuinely as a very close friend. I rang him on Christmas Day, has become quite regular for us. One or the other would ring each other on Christmas Day, um, a day which means different things to different people, but to me, means intimacy and close family. So I didn't ring many people ever on Christmas Day other than my immediate family, but Colin was the exception, and I think he saw it that way too. He'd been in hospital before Christmas um, and knew that we'd, we'd come close to losing him, and I rang him on Christmas Day and said, I hope you don't mind me ringing, and he reiterated a comment that meant the world to me. He'd said it before and he said it again, which was, you can ring me any time as far as I'm concerned. You're a close personal friend. He was with his family that day. He was with his, uh, his grandkids. That meant the world to him. John, his son, posted a picture on Twitter of him sat there having Christmas dinner with his kids. And that was, that was a very, very emotional picture. And when I got the phone call from John, his son, to tell me that he'd passed, um, I make no bones about it. I burst into tears. Um, towards the end of last year, I lost my dad, who was my main hero in life if you like and Colin would be a, a secondary hero to him but nevertheless very very high up and um, at times without being too mournful you know I feel as if um, so much of my my life has now, has now been lost so um, I, I will mourn him for, for quite a while I think as, a, as an ex-player as a hero but as much as anything as, as a personal friend 
it's it's really moving to hear that, Ian. And thanks for sharing those thoughts with us. It's it's not it's not easy. It's difficult. Can I can I go back to, to the start? I mean, the, the son of a, a northeastern miner started at Berry, and, and maybe Ian, you can just briefly kick off whether this story is true. It's been talked about a lot that Malcolm Allison sat in the director's box at Berry, watching this guy along with another another number of other scouts and people from other teams, and every time he touched the ball, he he slagged him off, saying he can't pass the ball, he can't head the. ball ball he's not got any vision is that a true story is that what happened is that how it all started and of course with the view that Malcolm was desperate to sign him for City and albeit as I think Rob's already indicated we could we couldn't afford it at the time is is that a true story that Alison did that yes I mean uh, I should explain that when I started to write the book it was going to be a biography because I felt that Colin being the modest man he was wasn't the right person to put the story in his own, his own words. Um, so I went to interview lots and lots of people, and along with Colin and Skip, Tony Buck, we went to visit Malcolm in the care home that he was in. He was suffering from dementia, and they warned me that he would have probably about half an hour of good mental capacity before he would start to drift off and, and would become less coherent. And I went and visited Malcolm on two or three occasions, and in those periods of... Of, of, of better um, mental capacity, he reiterated that story to me and told me that uh, ex- exactly what the myth, if you like, is. And so it isn't a myth, it is reality. He would go and sit there in the stands at Gig Lane and mutter to people all around him that he wasn't very good and that he, he didn't think he was worth the sort of money that people were talking about. Um, well, that was a tactic of his to, to make sure that he got the player and he had to convince Joel to, to uh, sign him. And um, thank goodness that he did. And, uh, and thank goodness that we had the privilege of watching Colin. So I can confirm that as much as uh, some people might describe it as a myth, um, certainly Malcolm saw that as fact. Amazing. Uh, Rob, do you, do you remember that first season? Of course, City got promoted, didn't they, in that first season he played in 1966 from the old second division up to the first division. Do you remember very much about that season or, or the first time you saw Colin play? Do you remember having that impact in that side in those very early days? I, I don't think he played many games in the first season. I may be wrong. Um, and it took, I mean, we, we, we knew he was special, but it took a year uh, really to establish the reality of, of, of how good he was. So uh, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't one of those um, lightning moments where you see a, a very great footballer. It took time, time to grow. Other people may find it differently, but I don't remember that first season as his necessarily where he was the great thing. Stato, your, your early reflections of King Colin as a, as a City yeah, I- player. Yeah, I, I started watching City in 1966, so we'd just been promoted, we were in the first division. I think he played every single game in that 66-67 season, and he was a phenomenal athlete, as we all know. He played so many games that in today's environment, he'd just keep going even today. He, he did obviously suffer the horrific injury in the League Cup match against uh, Stratford, but before then, I think he played 30 games plus in every single season in the league when there were 42 games in the season. And my early memories of him was he could do everything. He could shoot. He could score goals. He could head. He could tackle. He had this phenomenal engine of box-to-box player that just meant he could run, 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 and run. And there wasn't anything that he really couldn't do. Um, he could cross the ball. 
he would defend, he could pass. Um, I couldn't find a weakness. If I've got to think of a weakness, and this is being very, very... I'm just trying to think what it was. Maybe he couldn't use his left foot as much as some other players could, but I'm really being very picky there because he could do virtually everything else. And he, he was just a phenomenal footballer. Um, deserves all the play that he has received from us uh, on this podcast and others too. Fantastic. And he was my early hero and remained a hero throughout my city supporting life. Roger, I know you, you, you're good at remembering games and incidents and so on. Do, do you remember the first game you saw him playing and, and any reflections that first season yourself? Well, yeah. I mean, just to answer the question, he uh, in the 65-66 promotion season, he played the last 11 games yeah. uh, for City and scored four goals in, in 11 games, including the one that clinched promotion when we beat Rotherham away from home 1-0 at Millmore, and that was, uh, that, that was obviously the clincher. Uh, I remember that season particularly well because uh, with my dad, I went to every home game and City were unbeaten at home the whole season. They went the whole season uh, without losing a game at home uh, and clinched the championship, of course, uh, when they played Southampton in the last game in, in mid-May 66. One interesting fact, by the way, for you, and that is that uh, another big City hero, Johnny Crossan, uh, was actually long established at wearing the number eight shirt for the, oh. the previous season and uh, the early part of the 65-66 season. Um, so when he made his debut against Derby in March, uh, Colin actually wore the number 10 shirt, which sounds a bit strange for City fans because we all relate to him wearing the number eight shirt for so many games, of course. Um, but he and Johnny Crossan actually swapped between themselves between uh, then and the rest of the season, uh, wearing number 10 and number 8 intermittently. So uh, it was only the following season that Colin became established at number 8. Uh, Ian, it, it, it's difficult to sort of go through every season. I don't propose to, I think it just just get boring. But, but, but I think there are a couple of things to remember, that, that, that we got a situation that, yeah, we got promoted that season, and then over the next four years, we, we literally collected every single domestic trophy, and, of course, the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1970 as well. Um, and that was not just down to Colin Bell, but people talk about the fantastic trio of Bell, Lee and Summerby, which just <laughs> is, uh, is written into folklore, of course. And, and I suppose just just... Help us understand your, your thoughts about those three and why it worked so much and what an influence they had, not just on City, but on England. We dominated English football for that period of the, the late 60s and the early 70s. What was it about those three? Well, what I want to say, in, in a, and I hope this doesn't come over at all as arrogant, is that once I started writing the book as an autobiography, because I'd got inside his head so much, I could almost answer questions on his behalf. So I could imagine if he was now part of this podcast and you were asking him that question, the first thing that he would say is that it isn't just about Bell, Lee and Summerby, that Alan Oakes, that Mike Doyle, that other players in that team were just as vital uh, and he would want me to emphasise that and uh, uh, always saw Alan Oakes as being a very underestimated and valuable part of, of that that group. But obviously, uh, mainly from, from outsiders, it's always about uh, Bell Lee and Summerby and um, obviously the, those two are also iconic, Lee and Summerby, and they were the stars of that team, whether they like it or not. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, that the main emphasis really is to remember that it's a team game and that 
there are other individuals. I mean, I know in this day and age, you look at any team that's got Messi in it and it's somewhat overshadowed by his presence. But I don't think Colin, even at his peak, and I'm slightly younger than perhaps the average age of, of, of people involved in this, and I only saw him for the first time when I was 10 years old in 1970. So I didn't see him in the first four years that you're talking about his City career. But certainly when I remember him being part of that team, um, I remember him being uh, an absolute uh, integral part but of a team unit. And without the other players around him, um, he wouldn't have been the player he was uh, in, in some respects because it was all about... Uh, I mean, you look at Kevin De Bruyne now and his contribution is reliant on the runs and the availability of players in front and behind him. And I think in the same way, Colin was part of that, but he had two great players, no doubt about that, in Summerby and Lee, who were, were you know, so important to him. Uh, and I guess, Rob, you can't talk about Belly and Summerby and the late 60s and the early 70s without mentioning Mercer and Allison as well, of course, which again was a fantastic partnership, two very different characters, but together they absolutely transformed our team. Well, what an explosive contradictory combination you know with Alison being so loudmouthed and arrogant and provocative and Mercer being the gentle giant I used to say we we feel we can explode a little bit in the middle of the park you know he was very conditional about everything uh, that he said but if you think about that team and the things that they did the ballet on ice I was there in 1967. I mean, Bell scored in that game. Uh, it was an impossible pitch to play on. I don't know how they managed it, but it was just fabulous. And the, uh, another iconic game for me is beating United at Old Trafford in March 1968. You know, going to the Holy of Holies and beating them 3-1. You know, that lived with me forever because it was a, a sign of the times and the genius of the team. And without, Mal without Malcolm Allison saying, we, you know, we can do this, we're better than they are, uh, it, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I had December 67, the, the ballet on ice against Spurs on my, on my notes here to talk about. I, again, I, I think Roger was there. I'm not sure if you were there, Stato, or not. Were you at that game or not? I, I certainly was as a relatively young lad, but I, I was there. It was my first year as a season ticket holder. I remember going to the game, and I've seen it on the grainy pictures that you can still see nowadays. I'm watching it on, on the grainy pictures. You still can't believe it played, as Bob said a few moments ago. It was impossible to keep your feet on it. And I think, from, I think Spurs went 1 0 up as well. And then we just absolutely played ballet on ice. It was, it was football, it was incredible. And I remember being at the game, freezing cold as a kid. Uh, but I was just infatuated by the whole of the game. And that season was fantastic. I remember just touching on the Manchester United game when they won 3 1. I remember being very upset because I think it was an evening game. My dad had a yeah. ticket to go to the game, but he, he couldn't take me. And I was really upset about it because I think he only got one ticket for it. And he said, I'm having this one. Don't blame him. <laughs> um, and he went to the game. And in those days, you could only listen to it, I think, on the radio or something like that. And I was, I was coming up to, I was just short of my 10th birthday in, in March 68. I remember somehow listening to something, and, but it, was a, it wasn't a great way to follow the game. Um, but I think best scored for them after very, very early on, a couple of minutes or something. And then yeah. from that point on, it was all 
City. And we went and won it 3-1. And at the end of the season, of course, that proved um, to be the decisive win because I think we won the league by two points last game. And had we lost that game, well, we possibly wouldn't have won the league. Well, we would have uh, forfeited it because they would have had two points more and us two points less. But yeah, what a season that was. If you want an e-bike that doesn't look like it's made for the shopping precinct, something that's less Mr Bean and more Steve McQueen, check out the range of bikes from London-based Cooler King. From dope 250-watt city bikes to Harley Bobber-inspired 750-watt beasts that can tear your face off while leaving your smile intact. Cooler Kings are made in limited numbers, yet highly affordable. Check them out now on the web at cooler.bike or find them on Instagram with hashtag CoolerKingBike. Cooler.bike. E-bikes that are cool AF. Uh, Roger, any games we're going to talk about the injury and the challenge by Martin Buchan in the League Cup tie against Stretford shortly, but, but before we do that, any particular games uh, we talked about Bally on Ice again, I'm pretty sure you were there that, that day as well, any other particular games stand out for you? Yeah, the, well the, the, the previous season when City had just got promoted to the first division uh, City played uh, Stoke City at Main Road in April 67, just before the end of the season and um, Colin, I remember scoring what they call the traditional hat-trick, which is a shot with the left foot, a shot with the right foot, and a header. Uh, and I think that was, that was almost the making of him as, as my hero that game, because to score a, a traditional hat-trick, you know, w- w- was just fantastic. And by the way, one interesting point, that the game against United at Old Trafford in the championship-winning season has been mentioned. But why it was so important for everybody, and particularly for City fans, was the fact that we played United at Main Road much earlier in the season when it was still quite warm, I seem to remember. It was probably about September time. And uh, United beat us at Main Road 2-1. So it was vital, in my view, that if we were going to you know, have any chance of winning the championship, we had to beat them at Old Trafford. Even a draw wouldn't do. And I suspect that Malcolm Allison had uh, all the players wound up before that game so that they, they knew they were going to go on, go on and, and win that game. Listen, let, let's talk about the injury. Let's, let's talk about this League Cup tie in 1975. Martin Buchan. Uh, <laughs> I know you've talked to Roy Bailey, the physio, Ian, as well, on a number of occasions and, and recently as well about that. So what was your view What's what's the uh, the truth of the challenge? Was it a just one of those unfortunate incidents? Was it a bad challenge? How, how did how did Colin see the uh, see the foul? Did he see it as malicious, or was it just one of those things? Uh, Colin was was very um, humble in the way that he normally is, and that he didn't want to criticise. And so when I pushed him on that particular incident, he 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 didn't become negative or aggressive, but you could tell that there was a little bit of a feeling in the back of his mind that he didn't want to express too strongly that he felt maybe that there was a bit of nastiness in the tackle. 
Um, Buckham was there at his testimonial, um, and I remember watching that interaction between the two of them, and it definitely looked tense. I recently interviewed um, Andy Peebles for, for something I haven't put, put out on YouTube yet, but, but he was the stadium announcer on that day when the injury happened, and he said he saw Martin Buchan afterwards in a corridor who uh, was very emotional and was quite teary. But as Colin pointed out, Buchan never visited him in hospital. Mm. And when I contacted Buchan uh, during the course of writing the book, even though I'd had contact with him before while I was working for the BBC, so he perhaps recognised my name and knew who I was, as soon as I said I was writing the book and wanted some comment, he sort of spat out a, a line which was along, along the lines of, um, it doesn't matter what I say, people have made their mind up about this, so I'm not going to say anything. Um, so he obviously felt quite bitter that he'd perhaps been victimised. Uh, I suppose the truth of it is that we'll never know whether... Um, it was premeditated or whether there was any, any nastiness in it. Obviously, you know, he was a, a key player. You know, we saw a, a, a match at, at Old Trafford only a couple of weeks ago where you could argue that Fernandinho wanted to make sure that their key player, Fernandez knew he was around. And maybe that's what Buchan's intention was. I don't believe for a second that Buchan would have wanted um, the severe injury that happened to Colin to have happened. Um, so I, I suspect it was just a case of um, I'll, I'm going to show me Mark here and let him know we're around, but but without any, without ever the malicious intent that that people maybe now uh, think he had. That that would be my view, and I think that Colin probably would have agreed with that. I mean, a catastrophic injury sort of burst blood vessels around around the joint, Rob, and of course he he worked tirelessly, didn't he? I mean, pounding the Kipak steps, I think, didn't have the sort of facilities we have now of course and all the physios and so on i think it was like roy bailey and that was about it i suspect and uh, uh nowadays maybe he would have had slightly different treatment but uh, he certainly worked himself hard didn't he pounding the streets and, and climbing those kipak streets for, t for two years we believe he did. I mean, Freddie Griffiths was actually the main physio at that particular time. Roy was on the bench that night, so it was part of it all. Um, and, they, and Freddie told me before he passed away that um, he was worried that Colin might even lose his leg, um, you know, that night when, when they were taking him into hospital. And despite what people think, he actually played in some reserve games in the Central League and even made a first-team comeback um, before the, the the much lauded comeback against Newcastle. Um, so although I, I remember speaking to Tony Buck, who was manager at the time, and to uh, Bernard Holford, uh, you know, the much lauded secretary um, about that, and both of them and Colin collectively had forgotten Colin's initial comeback, uh, which uh, astounded me really. I remember watching Colin playing a few Central League games during that mm. return period as well, but Colin had insisted to me that as soon as the operation was finished, he'd had his leg immobilised in plaster for, for weeks. But the truth was, he didn't. And maybe now that we've seen what happened with Niall Quinn, who had something like that, um, and Alan Shearer, maybe with modern technology, Colin would have come back and, and played again. So uh, in the normal way, I mean, you know, to his full capability. So that's a, another tragedy, if you like, that um, we didn't get to see Colin come back to be his best again. Uh, it's interesting, Rob. I, I have. I, I'm quite happy to admit I've cried twice at a football match. 
the first one was the last ever game. Sorry, not the first one. The second one was the last ever game at Main Road. Just standing there with my mate, looking at the scene and just thinking of all the people who had gone before, all the memories, never going to be there again. And I genuinely um, cried my eyes out. The other time uh, was actually um, that Boxing Day against Newcastle United when I think I'm right in saying they just delayed Colin's introduction just for a moment to allow him to go out there. It was an electric moment. It was just one of those moments where I don't quite remember a noise like it, an atmosphere like it. It was just, it was emotional. It was exciting to see Colin Bell run out. And of course, we know he's kind of dragging his right leg slightly behind him. He never ran quite as smoothly again. But that was such an emotional evening. I I used to go and watch the reserves to see how Bell was getting on, and it was clear from that 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 there was something not quite ever going to be the same again with with the leg. But uh, 43 years ago on Boxing Day, you know, I was also there, and you say you cried. I cried that day. I still cry when I think about it. It was it was the most emotional. Uh, experience I've ever had uh, at a football match, and that includes the Aguero moment, oh. uh, which was shorter and happier. But it was it was just unbelievable. And people said to me after the game they'd never seen me. Who you know they, I'm supposed to be quiet and, and non-emotional, <laughs> and I completely uh, experienced something very special uh, on that occasion. And it was uh, it lives forever in the memory. And uh, the other thing, the positive thing to say is uh, Colin Bell has a wonderful son, as I think uh, Ian has has said, who's a consultant at at Christie's, which I have a personal interest in because they got me back to health. And he said that he became a doctor because of uh, his father's illness and wonderful things have come out of that. So although it was terrible, it, it, it had its good side. Uh, Paul, uh, as well as the emotion of that night, and I touched on the fact that Colin was never really quite the same again. He wasn't the same. You could see that he just, as I said before, was kind of carrying that right leg a little bit behind him. He was never quite regained the uh, the full fitness, and we never really saw the real Colin Bell again. No, tragically, we didn't. He was never the same player as he was before that injury. With his 48 England caps, he inevitably would have made so many more, maybe got on towards 100, who knows. Uh, but the injury finished his career. Let's be honest about it. He, he was never the same again. But the emotions of that day, I, I too was at that game. It was incredible. I've never seen as many grown men around me crying uh, at half time uh, as I read out a few months ago from the City Southampton programme. It was just breathtaking to see it. And you say players having an impact on a game. It, from memory, and this is back for, as you said, it's um, a long time ago now, 1977, so it's 43 years ago now, just over. I, it was nil-nil. It was probably a very grab nil-nil against Newcastle on a cold boxing day. But the emotions just stirred the team, and they went to a different level. Um, mm. uh, Dennis Tewitt got a hat-trick, but it was all inspired by Colin Bell. And I think even Tewitt had said, if it hadn't been for Colin Bell, that game could have just gone on to be nil-nil, and nobody would have ever thought about it ever again. But it's now uh, imprinted on all the people who were at that game, and people who probably didn't go to the game who heard about it. That match was just one of the most emotional games in football history. And I might be exaggerating a bit, but I'll go as far as to say, 
ever. Um, and yes, I'm biased because it was Colin Bell, but it was certainly had an impact on so many people uh, that day. Brilliant. Roger, you were with me that last game at Main Road. You were, you were the person who put your arms around me and, and gave me a, a hug uh, to console my tears. Um, what about what about Boxing Day '77, Rog? Yeah, I mean it was it was moving for all of us, wasn't it? And I, I think I, I can remember I was in the Flat Lane stand, and uh, the, the roar from the middle of the Kipax uh, was was the thing that you noticed straight away because the roar was slightly different. Normally, you'd get as teams ran out, you know, for a, the start of a, a second half, you would get a sort of a muted round of applause, and that was it. But you knew that the the people in the middle of the Kipax had seen Colin at the back of the uh, at the back of the team coming out onto the pitch, uh, and as he got further down the tunnel, obviously the rest of Main Road started to see that he was coming on, and the roar, the noise, the emotion was was just incredible. It's funny actually looking back on it. I think it was Paul Power who was. Uh, carrying a knock and I'm convinced in my own mind that Paul has decided to volunteer to, to, to get <laughs> injured and come off at half time so that Colin could come on because the roar was just sensational and, and, and as has been mentioned it, it inspired City to a super super performance second half and I think just to add to what's been said already I think the great thing with Colin was that he was such an intelligent footballer he, he had such a massive influence on these young players. And that season, the 77-78 season, was the one and only season when City won the Central League Championship. And again, it was Colin's influence on these young players that were coming through into the first team that enabled us to win the, the Reserve Championship that season. His influence on players coming through like Peter Barnes, Gary Owen, Paul Power himself, Kenny Clements, his influence was key, and I think he had a key part to play, even though he clearly wasn't as fit and not able to influence games individually, perhaps, as much as he had done in the past. Ian, can I just focus for a moment on this kind of, this understated, this reserved, this this humble Colin Bell? I mean, you can't imagine now players scoring a goal in a Premier League game and turning around, jogging back to the halfway line and, and just maybe shaking hands with two or three colleagues on the way back, which is what Colin Bell used to do regularly. Uh, help us understand a little bit. Give us a bit of insight, if you would, on this, this very humble, reluctant hero, as you call him. Well, the only way I can do that, really, is by talking personally rather than uh, in the football. Um, you, your panel here is so eloquent and so so well um, known in, in Colin Bell universe that rather than me add to that, the only thing I can do is add a little bit of insight as, as to the human being. I mean, I first met him when I went to the Colin, uh, the Bell Waldron Cafe in Whitefield that he had with a former Burnley player, Colin Waldron, and I was just uh, starting my broadcasting career and he was extremely nice to me, but he was also, even though I was only a boy, really, um, he was very, very quiet. And, you know, throughout the time I got to know him, um, initially through helping him run the, the baton relay in the Commonwealth Games and then on to, to writing the book. The one thing that came over all the time was that he didn't want ever to be the centre of attention. He never wanted to be um, it, it, to be about him. So when I was trying to think of a title for the book, 
um, reluctant hero just sort of jumped out of me. I mean, I could have called it King of the Kipax, Colin the King, anything like that, but that would not have been right for his personality. When I was recording the interviews that we did, um, I, I had to set up, and I've got all those record, recordings still, you know, I would set up a microphone sort of a few yards away. I would have loved to have mic'd up slightly closer, but he, 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 became, he was very self-conscious about things like that. Um, and, and the best story I can perhaps give you that illustrates his genuine humility was that we went up to the northeast where he, he grew up in Heseldon and he played for a team called Horden Colliery Welfare Juniors and I wanted to get a picture of him inside the ground and I went into the reception of the club because the, the ground was all locked up and asked for permission to go in there with Colin who, was, who said I'll wait outside I don't want to I don't want to cause a scene or anything um, and the, the lady in there said, oh, it's got to be put in writing and go before the committee. You'll have to come back in another month or two. Uh, so having been rejected, uh, when I told Colin, he just sort of shrugged it off and said, uh, never mind, whereas you might have expected some people to say, don't they know who I am and everything. <laughs> and I remember him standing on, a, on an ornamental rock outside the ground and me balancing another one, trying to take a picture of him so we could get over the eye line of a fence. Uh, and, and again, I, I just thought, I just can't believe other people would be like this. And then we walked up the side of the ground because the picture didn't really work. And there was a, about an eight-foot wall. And I said, the pity is, if we could get over that, if we could see over that wall, you get a beautiful picture of the ground. Couldn't have you in the foreground because they won't let us in, but at least they'll have a picture of the ground. And he, he just immediately cupped his hands and said, put your foot in there and see if you can get up the wall and get a good picture. <laughs> I said, Colin, I can't do that, you know. He said, just, just, you know, just put your foot in there, use it as a stirrup. And so I'm climbing up this wall with my foot in Colin Bell's hands, you know, and, and, and to get this picture, which, which I did. And I, and I just thought, I can't believe that, that another player of his stature within the game would have been like he was, um, you know. And when I eventually read the book to him at the very, very end of our time together doing that project. Um, he, he wanted me to read it to him, so he sat in an armchair, and over the course of a couple of visits, I did that. And when I'd finished the book, because he was so unemotional generally, I didn't quite know what he was thinking. And so I said, what do you think, Colin? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, very good, very happy with that, yeah. And I said, uh, I feel as if there's a book coming in. He went, well, and I thought, oh, blimey, you know, what have I done wrong? This would be a complete rewrite or something. And he said... Um, you haven't mentioned that I, I like Sudoku, you know, the, the, uh, the number <laughs> twist. And I went, and I went um, yeah, right. Oh, I didn't know you, you know, you were into that. And he said, yeah. He said, could you put that somewhere in the book? So I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. He said, apart from that, he said, it's absolutely perfect. Thank you. <laughs> and again, I just thought, I just thought, well, like, if, if anything, a story sums him up. Um, that's it. So I went, I went and found the appropriate chapter, the appropriate bit where he was talking about something about what he did away from football and just put that sentence in there. Um, <laughs> and, but, but to me, that, that, that story sums, him, sums up his humility. It's not a football story. Um, you know, we've all, we've all seen the pictures of him. If we weren't li living it at the time, of him just jogging back and waving away, everybody jumping on him and everything. Um, but, but that story to me tells you more about the human person than anything I can, anything else I can think of.
One, wonderful. I mean, I, sadly, we are running out of time slightly, but uh, I'm keen, Rob, Rob fr from your perspective, this reluctant hero. It's amazing that someone who is called reluctant hero then has a, a stand at, uh, at the Etihad Stadium named after him. I mean, all those players that have gone before, all those heroes that everybody would have seen, but it, it was Colin Bell whose name adorns that stand, the, the one that I sit in, my, my season card is in the Colin Bell stand, and, and that's just amazing to think, and, and he's a reluctant hero. How, how, does that, how does that work, Rob? Well, I think it's perfect. You know, uh, so modest, uh, a wonderful disciplinary record, um, a person that you can respect outside the game as well as inside the game. That is exactly the kind of person you want to... Uh, have a stand named after and it's 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 emotional just to to go and sit there because of uh, the memories that it evokes so like all great men there's a humility uh, and in, an integrity about him that will live forever and that's that's really uh, magnificent Paul, before before we wrap up, your, your opportunity to summarise your thoughts and feelings about the, the great, the late Colin Bell. Well, there's going to be lots of great footballers. There's been lots of great footballers and there will be in the future. But to me, Colin Bell will stand out and we'll have arguments over generations as to whether David Silva or future players are better than Colin Bell. But he was my hero when I was growing up. Um, and therefore, Colin Bell will stand out always for me as being the supreme Manchester City footballer. Not that I've got any lack of respect for any of the current squad. Kevin De Bruyne is a brilliant player. David Silva was. Many of the current squad are. But Colin Bell will just remain my hero. Um, and that's all I can say about him other than everything else that's been said uh, earlier on in the programme. Roger, the, the final thoughts are left to you, my friend. Well, I, I think first and foremost, if I may uh, take take this uh, moment now, just to say, well done to Ian on on a job well done on uh, on the book, Reluctant Hero. I think it was a fantastic uh, story, a fantastic book. It's certainly a book that will stay on my shelves uh, for the rest of my life. And uh, and I think congrats to Ian because he got the story across so well. Um, I think the thing for for me about Colin, the sign of a great player is always that they perform in big games. And, and I think mm. Colin always was always performing in the big games, whether it was Wembley finals, whether it was matches against Liverpool, whether it was derby matches at Old Trafford. I mean, incredibly, I, I checked on his record against United, you know, uh, and in 17 league games, he only lost three against United in all that time, in all that uh, that. that sort of 15-year period that he was with City. So I, I think that speaks volumes as well about how he turned in uh, regularly uh, sound performances in the big, big matches. Um, the thing that I remember most about Colin was his dedication after the injury. Uh, it's already been mentioned about, you know, impounding the streets around the ground, climbing the steps of the Kipaks. I was lucky because I worked at Main Road at that time when he was recovering from injury. And the job that I had at Main Road was quite strange, actually, because it allowed me to get round the ground and, and meet Stan Gibson and uh, meet the laundry ladies and go and see Freddie Griffiths and Roy Bailey. And I used to see Colin regularly in the physio room. But the funny thing with it was that he was very, very shy. 
And of course, I was completely starstruck. So it, it took weeks and weeks before we actually said hello to each other. But uh, that, was, that was partly because he was such a shy, modest, unassuming guy, you know. But uh, I, I'm so pleased and so proud that I got to know him uh, as I did in, in later years. And uh, Colin, I, I will miss you. I really will miss you. Listen, it's been a real joy and a pleasure. Um, Incidentally, I should just say very briefly that we, since the last show, we beat Stretford 2-0 in the Manchester City Cup, as it's been renamed. We beat Birmingham in the FA Cup. Uh, we play Brighton on Wednesday and we play Palace on Sunday. But actually, it all pales into significance. And it's been a pleasure. It really has. It's been a joy and it's been emotional. And I want to thank each and every one of you for sharing your thoughts and reflections on the great Colin Bell. Huge, huge thanks to Rob Behrens, to Paul Denby, to Roger Reed, and to Ian Cheeseman. This is Nigel Rothband saying thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you all very soon. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit Playback Media. Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.